All right, this sermon is indeed titled, In God We Trust. Uh, I can never cease to be amazed. I've been uh, at a a camp with my family who uh, run a ministry in Hobart and the last couple of days, spending a lot of time in the Word, and it never ceases to amaze me how it always speaks to the issues of today. Uh, It is relevant for something that was written thousands of years ago. It keeps hitting all the points, right on point, if you will. And we're going to see that today, because the other title for this sermon would be What is a Christian's Response to Pandemics, Wars, Famines and Rumours of Wars? Because God does speak to these issues and we've had them. And it's been on my heart for a few months, so this is, uh, today is what we might call an elder's spot. We occasionally have slots just because we've had something laid on us, and this has been laid on my heart for a while. And I'll apologise in advance if I get excited and speak too quickly. I'm going to try very hard uh, to slow it down. Uh, but when I get excited, that is an unfortunate thing. It's hard to understand what I'm saying. I'll do my best, though. So in talking about this... Um, I was reflecting recently, uh, Jordan Peterson, who's heard of him? He's kind of this right-wing commentator, yeah. And uh, I saw him arguing with, against the, the common narrative these days, which is that all of history's problems are because of an oppressive male patriarchy. You've heard that before? Yeah. Uh, which I strongly disagree with. But he said, no, no, he said, history is a rough place. And I can't help but agree with that. Um, my, my son uh, is quite into his history books at the moment. I read a lot with him. Uh, we even kind of do little soldier collections occasionally learn about the history around them, and it's all quite fascinating. In equal parts, depressing, and you just realise how hard it was in years past for them. And there's kind of three major events that you think of that happen throughout history that are just always uh, so overwhelming, it kind of defines that generation. It'll change their worldview. Um, one of them's famine, for example, you know, widespread, catastrophic, huge loss of life. It, it shapes people movements. Um, you see even the Israelites themselves. I mean, they, essentially, they ended up in Egypt way back in the day because of a famine. You look at something like pestilence, disease, you know, and you just look through history, it, 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 there's numerous references in the Bible which is just destroying people. You've heard of the bubonic plague ripped through in the Dark Ages, yeah. It was, it was wiping out half a population at a time. Cities like Paris and Florence lost more than 50% of their population. Just extraordinary suffering. And then I don't need to get into war, do I? Because you'd think war. Um, I was reading the other day that uh, you can look back on history. Um, in fact, pretty much all known history, there's only some 200 odd years where we know that there was peace in those times. The rest have been filled with war. And it's, it's equal parts depressing, but equal parts just realising that all these events that happen, as much as they were dark to history, um, they're challenges that kind of overwhelm people collectively at scale and they're really powerless to do anything about it. So you're kind of overwhelmed. What can you do in the face of bubonic plague, really? It's wiping out cities. What can you do when a foreign country invades yours and just rapes and pillages the land and waltz in and subjugates your people? Individually, there's really very little you can do. The Bible has a lot to say about, that, about those three particular events especially. And I think what's most enlightening for us is that as we've lived in our relatively comfortable Western Christian existence and in this society is that we've not really experienced great colossal suffering until 18 months or so ago, two years now, uh, when we for the first time have a experience in the, in the COVID pandemic that literally bypassed all our controls and safety nets that was able to rip through a modern world and actually affect us with a real legitimate sense of fear. For the first time we've got a at scale sense of something bad could happen to me. And I really want to talk today about our response. What was it? What should it have been? 
how can we improve it if it wasn't right? And I want to think of that and reflect on it as a church as a whole. So you're with me on that? And we're going to just explore what the Bible has to say about these kind of colossal scale events when they hit you as an individual. How do we respond to them? So the way I'm going to do this is we're going to look at a, a story um, from the Bible. I always find that the best way of analysing. Because what we're going to go through first is what is the natural human proclivity? What happens by our nature when these things happen at scale? So we go back through the Bible, there's this story that came out, in fact if you've been reading uh, through the chronological Bible, I think in the, um, in our, I forget what you call it, the little thing that Paul, our journal, thank you, um, yet yeah, you would have come recently through this story, it's in 1 Samuel. So this is a brief history, uh, if we make a mark in time at the time of Moses, because pretty much everyone universally has heard of Moses, you have the big stories of him parting the Red Sea and the Israelites coming through. The Israelites took possession uh, after that time, after 40 years, of a, of a land which is still the land of Israel as it is today. It was promised to them by the Lord. And when he gave it to them and the covenant he made with them, it was quite unique in that he said, I am going to be your king. So there was no king or authority structure over this entire society there was actually a people who lived under God there was a priesthood uh, which is roughly uh, one of the tribes of Israel the, the Levites essentially acted in a, in a mild ruling capacity but it was really minimalist uh, essentially God was the ruler and the people lived under God and God blessed them but then we have this one book um, wedged in between a lot of other stories. Um, so Israel is kind of broken up in two bits. It started, and then there's about 400 years of this time where they're being ruled under this manner, where God is king, and he would occasionally appoint key people called judges uh, to uh, rule over them and to, to judge them. Uh, so that, book is, that time span is in the history of, or in the book of Judges in the Bible. And as we get to the end of that, uh, you kind of get a bit depressed if anyone's read through that thing. It is a massive, horrible cycle uh, whereby Israel is constantly falling away from the Lord and calamity befalls them of all the kind of things we've just talked about. And especially neighbouring tribes or nations or kings coming in, raping and pillaging their land, taking over their people and subjecting themselves. Um, and various judges would be appointed at some point by God uh, essentially to bring the people to repentance and as they would repent and turn to God, uh, God would tend to deliver them from these people in quite dramatic ways. We've got a lot of stories, Gideon, you know, Samson's one, you've got a, got a few in there. But you get this pretty vicious cycle happening. And then we get to 1 Samuel where we have Samuel who is one of these judges, in fact the last judge uh, that we will read of uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. And he's getting old, the people are in a good place at this time, Samuel's actually been able to bring about a work of repentance to a degree with them and they're in a relatively speaking good place right at that point in time, it might be short lived but at, at that very point in time. But the people see his sons and his sons are not good um, and Samuel had been under a, a pre his, the previous high priest before him was Eli and his sons were no good either so there's a bit of a history of this unfortunately. Uh, but the people were essentially not totally unreasonably a bit nervous about who was going to be the next leader of the nation and they weren't really liking this whole arrangement of God being king and we being the people and they're, they're looking at the neighbouring nations around them which seem to be doing pretty alright. Um, they've got kings, they seem to be doing pretty well. So they come to Samuel in, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 7, oh, sorry no, not in that verse sorry but they basically asked Samuel, uh, actually we would like a king, <laughs> thank you, we would like a king, thank you very much. Um, Samuel's quite 
disturbed by the request and he goes to the Lord and the Lord responds to him and that's verse 7 I just mentioned before jump the gun but 1 Samuel 8 7 uh, God responds to him and says Samuel look they haven't rejected you um, they have rejected me from being king over them God knew exactly what they were doing uh, they wanted a king over them and so the Lord was actually okay with letting them have what they wanted but he said Samuel first warn them what's going to happen and this is quite telling in terms of he's going to tell you what kind of things going to happen when you get a king over you all right let's have a, have a little look through that and this is in the rest of 1 Samuel so so Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king and he said this will be the practice of the king who will reign over you he will take your sons and put them in his chariots for himself and among his horsemen and they will run before his chariots he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to do his ploughing and to gather in his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters and use them as perfumers, cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your seed and your vineyards and give it to his high officials and his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. It's a pretty dire picture of what a king's going to do to you. He's going to literally just subject you, take all of your best goods, impoverish you, enslave you. You get the idea. And then at the very end, verse 18, if you're following with me there, uh, it says, Then you will cry out that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. You're going to regret it. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. So he's making pretty clear this is it. It's a one-way train. You're going to choose a king. Uh, that'll be it. I'm not going to take him away from you after this. Um, so the sad thing is, well, if you got that kind of warning from God, what do you think you would do? I was like, okay, well, maybe let's rethink this one <laughs> through a little. Uh, yet the people refused, we're told, verse 19, to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us so that we also may be like all the nations and our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles this is the normal human proclivity okay you see what's going on around you um, and you look at relative nations and what's happening to you and you go oh the difference was they had a king those nations around us had a king who fought their battles and we need one who's going to fight our battles for us so they deserved their safety and they ascribed it to a king and this is the this is the tragedy of it so that was not it at all they're going to go and enslave themselves to this king and yet that was not the problem at all and in fact, later when uh, they, or Samuel anoints Saul and he's, he's put before the people, uh, Samuel kind of find, makes a final statement towards him saying, look, now you've got your king, but this is how it's going to work. He says in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Indeed, you must not turn aside, for then you would go after useless things which cannot benefit or save, because they are useless. And what are one of these useless things that are not going to help them? It's a king, actually. But then he concludes in verse 25, but if you still do evil, both you and your king will be swept away. The fundamental issue with them is that it was a godlessness issue. It wasn't an issue that they didn't have a king. It wasn't an issue that they didn't have the right kind of protections for themselves and that these neighbouring countries would rape and pillage their land. It was quite literally that they had turned aside from the Lord, that they had rejected him now as king and that they had clung to godlessness. And this is a, the fundamental human nature is that you can't see the wood for the trees. You know, where, where godlessness is an issue, that is the reason trouble comes so often. And yet frequently we'll look past that going, it's not that, no, it's we didn't have X or Y or whatever we want to look at it. And it's, it's a terrible mistake, but it's a really normal human thing to do. 
And I don't want to ask, when we look at major scale events like these, because the Bible's pretty clear, frequently when you see pestilence, famine, sword, they're almost exclusively in Bible used in the context of judgment. We get clear on that. It's not, not always, but very, very frequently it is. And so we're going to look at these things and go, oh, well, our solution is we've got to run off to some external source uh, to fix our problems, to find our safety. We've missed the mark entirely. And I just want to talk through a couple of things that the Bible talks about where man will naturally lean on. So we've just seen this story here where the people of Israel have gone, okay, we're going to cling to our king. All right. Um, who knows what happened to those kings in the end? Uh, we have one kings, two kings, one chronicles, two chronicles. Does anyone know it's the story great at the end? How does it all pan out? It's pretty sad. Uh, it's pretty sad. And so all those things that God prophesied would happen, did happen. They did enslave them. They were oppressed. And at the end, the entire nation was taken away because of godlessness again. It never fixed a thing. And you see towards the end of that period, there's quite a lot of prophecies because people at the end, under their king, were still trying to cling to other hopes as well. So think of you know, leaning on your military power, for example. So, well, if we have a strong army and a great king, we've got some really strong allies, and that will protect us from our neighbouring peoples. But Isaiah was prophesying back then because he knew what was coming. He was prophesying that Babylon was going to come and take them. He says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. Woe to you if you think Egypt's going to be your great ally partner is going to save you from all this and for, why do these people who trust in chariots because they're many and in horsemen because they're very strong but they don't look to the holy one of israel nor seek the lord which is a fundamental problem you're going to look to other things they're going to fail you you can apply that in modern day really really easily now do we think that australia tasmania is safe we've got a great ally in the u.s great military technology and power so that won't save us if godlessness is the problem none of that will save us it'll all be utterly worthless at the same time, they also had false prophets at the time. They'd cling to the words. Uh, Jeremiah was again prophesying, saying, you've got to be subject to this king of Babylon. That's the way God appointed it. It was a judgment you're supposed to subject yourselves to. And they were trying to rebel against him. And the prophets of the day were saying, no, it's fine. Do not listen to the, you know, peace, peace, quite literally, when there is no peace. And Jeremiah said, don't listen to the words of the prophets who say to you, you will not serve the king of Babylon. But people would rather hear a prophecy that makes them feel good, gives them some sense of hope, even though no hope is justified. So people might lean on a false prophet. We think about today, what do we like to lean on especially? It's paraded in the media, um, in a lot of our secular entertainment, constantly, even something as simple as Ninja Warrior, the amount of people you'll see on there saying, I did this to prove that I can do anything. We will lean on ourselves. So you may not be leaning on another nation, you may not be leaning on false prophets, you might say, no, I can do anything. <laughs> um, and what does the Lord say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. And it becomes particularly embarrassing when you get these kind of large-scale events and realising the power of the individual in that particular instance is not what's going to save you, not in the way that this is being thought out. There's only one thing you can do to save yourself, and we'll get to that. So it's not, you, you can't lean on military might or the other nations, false prophets yourself. What about us men generally? I'm going to rely on some good people that I know, you know around us. You know, and Isaiah was saying, stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in, in esteem? Jeremiah is really pointed when he was prophesying to the, to the people in the similar circumstances. This is what the Lord says. He said, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. And those are often paired together. There's turning away from the Lord and trusting in the flesh. 
they're not paired together because it's only if you meet both conditions that you've got a problem. They're paired together because they go hand in hand. If you trust in the Lord, you don't lean on flesh in the same way. If you want start instinctively going towards the flesh, you stop trusting in the Lord. They're not a, oh, pick one and just make sure you don't get both wrong. Yeah, yeah they, they literally go hand in hand together, and that's the, the way these come together. So you get the final warning, which is, uh, Psalms 118 just says this quite simply, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in people. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in noblemen. And that's essentially the scenario we had in, the, in this story from 1 Samuel, which is they've said, no, we're going to trust in our kings. We think good kings will save us uh, from our calamities. I will just say very briefly at this point, even though I'm having a bit of a dig at government and authority generally, this is not trying to say that in any way we should be civilly disobedient. Um, the New Testament is abundantly clear on that particular point and that we should always be submissive to every authority because they're appointed by God um, to the point that we should be, obey every ordinance, every law that they instruct. So we're not talking about here about being disobedient to authorities. What we are talking about is like the Israelites, will we literally run to our government or to some leaders for our help and happily enslave ourselves in the hope that they are somehow going to save us from our present calamities or troubles. A godless society will do this, right? And a godless society will see a pandemic and utterly fall over itself trying to find a saviour for itself, whether it's in science or in government. But if we as Christians are doing the same thing, I feel we've missed the mark. Right? Because when world-changing events face us, whether it's something like disease, famine or sword, where and to whom are we going to turn? So we know who we're not to turn to, to whom do we turn? The answer is obvious, but I'm going to go through this Psalm 91 because it expresses it really well and it's just to such an utter contrast from that really shaky foundation of trusting in other things. So Psalm 91 says from verse 1, in fact, pull it out. It's a, good, it's a great psalm. Pull it out in your Bible if you've got it there. Psalm 91. We'll go through the first eight verses. Verse 1. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So the first thing you know straight away is that the person who trusts in the Lord has a rest about them. There is a fearlessness about it because they've put their trust in the right place, in something that is absolutely sure, which is, will never fail. My God in whom I trust. Verse 3, surely he will save you from the fowler's snare. That's the translation I've got. Some of you might have something slightly different. Um, that's an old term for someone who used to trap animals, essentially. Um, I've had scenarios, and I think this is essentially talking to where you've got people out there who are out there to get you, someone who's trying to entrap you. You think about Jesus and his ministry. He had people go out and try and trap him in his words. They were trying to ensnare him. I've had people in my workplace uh, a, a couple of times, actually, in the last 10 years or so, where they've, they've tried to set themselves against me for whatever reason. I don't know their motives, but they've started to kind of lay little traps and whatnot. Um, it didn't bother me in the slightest. In fact, in both cases, um, I saw, saw that God essentially delivered me from them both. Um, in fact, both of them ended up making terrible career choices and stalled themselves terribly pretty soon thereafter. So he's going to save you from the fowler's snare, from those who want to trap you, and from the deadly pestilence. Pestilence, old-fashioned word just for disease, essentially a pandemic fits right within that category. So if you thought the Bible didn't know anything about these topics, you're wrong. It speaks very directly to them. It talks about pandemics. Surely he will save you from the foulest snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. 
His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. The languages of a great care where God wraps himself in your wings like a child. You are protected. You've got that security about him. You have things like shield and rampart. There's a strength to it. So this trust in the Lord is really radical in that it gives you a real changed perspective inside. You are protected. You are cared for. You are shielded. And so therefore, verse 5, you will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. War can come around you. It won't be a problem. 6, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. Another reference to disease, nor the plague that destroys at midday. And this is where it gets really good, verse 7 and 8. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. He's making it clear if it's happening to your right and to your left in these numbers, it's not that you're not in the immediate proximity, not near you in proximity, but it is not going to touch you or affect you. It will not come near you. And in verse 8 is the real clincher. You will only see or observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. We remember I said before, a lot of these things are frequently uh, an act of God's judgment on people. And that's why when the psalmist is saying, you're going to be safe, he's, saying, he's not saying these things are never going to happen. And it doesn't take much of a reading through the Bible to say there's no suggestion ever that these things are not going to happen and certainly not going to happen around you. Jesus himself prophesied that there was going to be in the last days and prior to the last of last days, if you will, these kind of events happening, wars, famines, etc. It's not that they're not going to happen, but you are seeing God at work believe it or not, because he is sovereign. And so we want to just talk about why can we trust in God so well? Why is the psalmist so confident in this psalm that he can go, yeah, I, I can trust, I can shelter in him when these things are happening? This is firstly because he knows that God's in control. That verse 8 makes it clear. You're watching God at work. Right? You're going to see these things. And we know that God is in control of these kind of things. I'll give you a quick example, say famine. Um, if you looked at, at Joseph when he comes to uh, interpret the dream of Pharaoh and he tells him, God has shown you what he is going to do about this famine. It was something that God was going to do and he said God has also chosen to reveal it to Pharaoh. These were things that God was actually doing and using for his purposes. Psalm 103 just says simply God is sovereign over all. His authority literally is sovereign over all. And so we know that he's in control of these affairs, he's in the, well, control of all the affairs of mankind. So we know he's got the power over these events. So we don't need to fear them on that ground, that God indeed has the power. And then that when you combine with the fact that God has placed us in a very special position, that's why the psalmist has such confidence. Because firstly, we are his children. If you have believed in Jesus, you are his children. And Romans 8 expresses it beautifully. He says, you've not received a spirit. So it's part of our salvation work, we're told, that we receive his spirit. And he says, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And that is transformative there, because if you've experienced him as your father and you know his love towards you, you can rest in that love, because right? you know that that's the spirit he's given you. And it is quite contrary, because the other spirit, the one he delivered us from, was the opposite, slavery and fear it was what was associated with, us, with it. And he makes it very clear that he loves us very directly as his people. I'm thinking of 1 Peter 5, uh, where, where Peter says, Therefore just humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, because he cares for you. And this is the nature of God, that if you are his child, uh, not only have you received a spirit of sonship, and, and of being a son and a daughter from him, uh, you know that he cares for you as a result. We're told in John, the perfect love casts out fear. And that's certainly in relation to our salvation, the fear of judgment. But it's the whole idea that God 
loves us because of what he did through his son. He loves us even when we're sinners, how much more so when we're saved. That love casts out these kind of fears. And it is the death knell of fear in these overall situations. And again, why can the psalmist say these things? Because he's experienced that himself. We know David was very aware of God's love, magnificently aware. So I love this passage from Romans 8. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So there's no end of promises and an understanding that God himself loves us in these situations. And that does have a relevance upon these major world-scale events. I'm about to quote from one of my all-time favourite passages in the Bible. Uh, it's from Romans 8. Uh, and, and yeah, let's pull that one out again because we'll just read a little section from it, from verse 31. So, so get that ready. Uh, but again, it just speaks at the scale. Some of the songs we've been singing before this speak of this as well. The fact that we have an eternal perspective on life, the fact that he has granted us an eternal salvation, that's why we're just singing before. It is well with my soul, no matter what befalls or comes my way, yet it is well with my soul because we have an eternal hope and we have a love from God that it cannot be separated through any event. So, and that's essentially what this passage goes through. If we look at Romans chapter 8, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died but rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Essentially, Jesus Christ taking upon him our condemnation means we have no more condemnation, no enemy who can actually lay anything to our charge or blame. And because of that, we stand in a, in a privileged position before God where Jesus himself makes intercession for us. And from verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Yeah, will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It's all the kind of events we're talking about. Just as written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Because sometimes God will have his people slaughtered for his sake. That's the nature of being a martyr or suffering in his name. It says in verse 37, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And my favourite bit here, For I am convinced, for I am persuaded, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, or the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from that eternal hope. And the, the most beautiful thing as Christians is that we have these truths in which to inform us. We have the love of God and we have his spirit within us which evidences that same hope. We have a spirit of adoption, we're told. And the way that is... I guess realise as a Christian when you look at these kind of events how do we truly not worry I think there's a verse from Philippians that really captures that well is that we need to fall to God in prayer and Philippians says quite literally be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your crests be made known to God so if you're going to not be anxious there is a tool at our disposal and that is prayer now I think when we look at something like a pandemic, and this is where we just have to be introspective for a moment and look at when we have large-scale events coming to us and going, what is our response? I, I get concerned sometimes when we look around. So has our response been no different to the world whatsoever? Do we just spend our time looking at 
statistics and percentages and, and media to understand what's going on and understand that God himself is actually in the picture. Because if we're not careful, we've, we essentially analyse the whole thing as if he made no difference whatsoever, as though prayer had no impact at all. Whereas the reality is we're told that our fear can be replaced through casting our cares upon him and in prayer and supplication making requests made known before him. So I want to ask, is God so weak that he can't heal, that he can't protect us? The psalmist was very confident, clearly, that that was the case, that God would indeed be able to shield him from all these things. And so I would encourage us that as we look about this and we start going, can we pray, can we actually understand within us that there is no need to fear? Jesus was constantly saying, and he had a couple of passages quoted in both Luke and Matthew where he's saying, you don't need to worry even about tomorrow. You don't need to worry about what you're going to eat or drink. These kind of things God takes care of. Such is the nature of our confidence in God that even the minutiae he deals with and even the large-scale activities he deals with, it doesn't matter. So I want to ask very precisely, is in God we trust, that's the name of the sermon, is it in God we trust? Because our natural human proclivity doesn't, and it falls on all these things that ultimately can fail us, even if they give you a sense of security for some time. In the long run, they fail you. So our response, essentially, is to understand when we see these large-scale things, our first thing we need to ask is, is godliness an issue? Is a godliness an issue in my life? Is it an issue in our current society? Uh, have we invited judgment upon ourselves? Because that will be the turning point, not to whoever we throw ourselves to to try and save us from it. I'd say that we do not need to fear because we can understand that God does indeed care for us and protect us. And that when we combine those two things, that a trust in him and an acknowledgement that we need to be aware of our own godliness or lack thereof, that we need to be repenting and praying. And so that our act in times like these is that we should be on our knees. And I'm a little concerned that when I've looked at the last 18 months, I haven't seen a lot of it, to be honest, um, that we've literally just run and hid in many cases. But we need to be on our knees when these things happen. We need to be praying. And if you're not saved uh, here today and you're kind of not getting a sense why we don't need to uh, be scared, I'm, I'm hoping that you've had Christians in your life where you have seen a true and genuine confidence. Um, unfortunately, all of us have, but... You haven't. I can only emphasise the, the great blessing it is to truly know him and to know what a friend we have in Jesus. So can we sing, I think we're going to sing that song shortly. What a friend we have in Jesus, upon whom we can cast all our sorrows, all our cares, and how often we just neglect the basic idea that we can pray to him, our friend, and have our fears taken away and our issues actually dealt with. Yeah. So we might invite. Is that appropriate to run that song now? Actually, sorry. Yeah. Well, later anyway. Yeah. But yeah, let's, let's pray together, if we will, that, that we would have this right attitude towards God and, tr and truly trust him in these affairs. Yeah? Father, I thank you that you are most of all faithful and that we see in your word yeah, the descriptions of you, Lord, that you are all powerful and that you are loving and that we are in such an immensely privileged position, Lord, that you have, of all people, chosen us, Lord, that you have loved us even while we were sinners, Lord. You have given us Jesus Christ and that alone shows us how much you love us, Father. As so, Lord, collectively we would repent of godlessness and we repent even if we have not been reacting right as these great uh, troubles have come upon the world. Lord, we've not reacted right, if we have not sought you diligently about them, if we have feared inappropriately and run to things that are not you in it, Lord, I, I repent. Lord, I pray that we would set our eyes firmly upon you, Lord, that we would be able to express, just like David the psalmist did, 
a complete trust and confidence in you, Lord, that we know that we can see these events happening and know, Lord, apart from you, uh, nothing can happen to us, Lord, apart from your will. And that you are with us, Father. I pray that you would take away every bit of fear, every bit of anxiousness, Lord, and that we would even be able to cast all these things upon you, Lord. And I thank you especially that here in Tasmania we have been largely spared from this thing, Lord. But I pray that as we reflect on how we responded when we weren't sure how it was going to pan out, Lord, that we would know, Lord, if we were in the right and if we need to, to come into a better place with you, Lord, whether we need to be in a place with you where we can know you better and where we can trust you more. So I pray you'd reveal that to us in Jesus' name. Amen.